This is the Pseudobook Podcast, a podcast all about the arts and culture. I'm Mike Edwards, one of your hosts. And this is Justin Edwards, his brother and also host. And today we have a special guest, Bruce Edwards. It's an Edwards cast. Say hello, Bruce. Hello, Bruce. <laughs> Not correct. <laughs> Bruce is, uh, is our father, so we're happy to reveal that twist ending yes, thank to you. our audience. <laughs> no! <laughs> and uh, I'm going to hand it off to Justin because he's going to explain what we're doing. Yeah, why did I bring my father on our podcast? Um, well, I have been about five weeks now. I've become a film professor, which has been very interesting. Um, first time I've, I've done such a thing, and it's been a lot of fun. And I've just been really inspired by kind of getting to work with students again and hearing their stories. And that's what I get to teach is just we look at story and, you know, where does it come from? How do we get better at it? And um, just our first week, we did this really cool, you know, very basic assignment. But it was just to, to kind of get out a journal and just write about all of your influences, like, who, who is anybody who has impacted your life in any way to cause you to be who you are right now? So, you know, that's everything from like the culture and socioeconomic class, socioeconomic <laughs> um, religion and, you know, but then particularly pop culture is, you know, my area of interest too. Like I love hearing how people get into the movies and music um, and, and kind of... Sometimes there's some interesting stories behind where those influences came from. Um, I know I always just like to to brag that I grew up in a house with Narnia and Twin Peaks, and it's just that's made me turn out like I am, whatever that <laughs> is, for for good or for ill. Um, and the other day I ate hot dogs and drank wine, so that's that's what happens. <laughs> that's who you are. So that's growing up in the Edwards household. Um, but obviously one of our, our major influences in Pseudobook was, you know, our father. And we wanted to uh, just bring him on to, um, you know, we'll talk some about how he has influenced us. But mostly we're very curious to hear his own stories and background with growing up. Uh, he grew up some in the 50s and the 60s, and he saw a lot of different things come into the world. Um and his own influences, you know, with, with pop culture, particularly, you know, very, very cool stuff. So, um, and he agreed to come on. So thanks dad. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> I guess to start it off, I'm interested to hear, um, like, was, was there a certain moment you can remember in your life that you went from just listening or watching or seeing kind of what was brought to you to like becoming a seeker of things and culture? Well, I was thinking about that earlier today, and uh, one of the first things I wanted to do was become a disc jockey. And I, I listened to radio an awful lot, um, and uh, late into the night, and uh, you know, not just baseball broadcasts, although that was an influence, these voices that could uh, recreate a, a game that I loved. Uh, and I, uh, you know, early on had access to things like typewriters and, and uh, the earliest uh, cassette player. And uh, you know, pretended to be recording baseball games as well as uh, you know, picking my own songs and recording them, and you know, making up stories about the uh, the artists. Even to the point, I, I remember this: 
I used to take 45s I didn't care about anymore, and I'd, I'd create labels to paste on top of those in order to uh, you know pretend that they're a group I invented and a, a song I wrote. So uh, that's some of the earliest things. So, so would that be like early 60s, late 50s? That's late 50s. I would say you know, five or six years old, I was doing things like that. I had a terrible handwriting, so that's why I became a, 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 a one and two finger typist. Was there a, a certain uh, DJ in particular you were emulating, or? Well, uh, there was KYW in Cleveland, and they had the Martin and Howard show in the mornings, and they would do all sorts of shtick uh, comedy stuff, and also play top forty records. And uh, I got used to thinking that's that's a way of being that. that Sort of your own life could be uh, uh, captured in a, a disc jockey's uh, patter. Uh, in, uh, and, you know, my, my mom and dad were, were both interested in music and comedy albums. And, and, you know, my mom had taken me at an early age to downtown Akron and I saw acts like Pat Boone and, and some others that, you know, were heralding the, you know, the, the new rock and roll sound, and which is really just a. A, a stolen kind of music from uh, black artists, R and B artists like Chuck Berry. So um, I got exposed to all that, and mm-hmm. you know, at some point I can I can talk about New York because my family had this odd tradition of spending two weeks every summer in New York City, and we did that for ten or twelve years when I was growing up, and I got exposed to all sorts of neat things from uh, you know record stores when they were really record stores and. TV programs I got to you know to see and so there's a certain point at which I didn't think of of my life as distinct from pop culture or TV culture I I thought I was uh, I'm a participant I'm mm-hmm. I'm 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 either part of the audience or I'm part of the creative group behind the audience How are you able to participate without Twitter <laughs> <laughs> Good good question what, Was this very so it sounds like it was very shared with your parents, and they're open to, you know, letting you experience pop culture and be kind of a consumer. Um, yeah, and, and my my grandparents, whom we live behind, were also uh, interested and uh, you know like to uh, you know watch television, and you know I uh, first six grades uh, of, of school I was. Uh, uh, Kind of a latchkey kid coming home either either to my own house or you know to my grandma's house because my mom worked as a bookkeeper till about four o'clock every day and so I got to watch talk shows and and all of that and uh, became really uh, just mesmerized by by the medium and uh, not not so much print you know I, sometimes people say well you, was print you already know? dying. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, books didn't interest me as much as comic books interested me, and so I liked the merge of merger of graphics and dialogue and telling your story through those two medium, uh, you know, panels of uh, the comic book, rather than you know seeing it as a uh, static. I, I saw it as a dynamic medium, and in you know. Had had uh, lots of fun. I you know like a lot of kids growing up. I think in the fifties and sixties, I also wrote my own comic books, not with illustrations, but I wrote the the story of it, and hmm. still still have it somewhere in one of these files in my office here. You know, was this uh, during the? 
paperback scandals of the 20th century when like publishers were really against them until suddenly they're like, oh, we can make tons of money on these? Or was that earlier? Well, I used to hear stories from my mom about how, she wouldn't use this word, but I would lurid covers are. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was a scandal uh, for the, the book and the movie Peyton Place, which was about a, you know, a, a New England village that had all sorts of corruption and and adulteries and subplots and suicides and all sorts of stuff. And um, I didn't know later until Is I read it like Melrose Place, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that that sort of was a sanitized version of. I mean, the, the book version was the first time anybody had ever used some of the vocabulary and, and plot twists of it because that would have been considered uh, Mia Farrow uh, prurient and you know, yeah, appealed to the imagination of drunkards and you know. Malcontents mm-hmm. in society lived on the edge. So yeah, I remember just reading recently of like it was about an article about TV shows getting around censors or using sales techniques to trick censors into allowing things through, and like they they put worse language into the scripts and then back down to what they actually want to say. <laughs> and the, the example was uh, on Happy Days, they wanted to mention that someone was a virgin. And apparently that was like, you can't do that on TV at the time. Huh. Yeah, well, well, even the I Love Lucy show, you know, she was obviously pregnant for real. And they had to explain it somehow in this show, but they would never use the word pregnant which just seems kind of silly to me. It's just descriptive to us now. But, it doesn't but, have all the yeah. baggage. Yeah, in the so 50s, just, you couldn't do that. They didn't want to address that they might have had to have sex. Right. Like, it was just completely... Wow. Right. Hardly any uh, sitcom or drama show of the 50s ever showed a bedroom that had more than... Uh, that had less than, you know, one bed, because uh, you had to have two beds to show that everybody slept... In their own bed. <laughs> in their own bed, yeah. Huh. Or, or, you know, kids had bunk beds and everything, but... I don't know if it was self-conscious or not, but it, 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 mm-hmm. it sure strikes you when you look at... There's a, there's a channel in Alaska where I live that runs all these 50 shows all day long, all the time, and you know, black and white. And so you can really catch up on a lot of innuendo and stuff that you didn't see, wouldn't have thought to uh, analyze when you're growing mm-hmm. up. I mean, think, think of that. Some of those shows are 60 and 70 years old. And even the Burns and Allen show, George Burns and Gracie, how a great vaudeville act that became you know movie stars and so forth there's a lot of playful uh innuendo going on even even in uh, in those shows which you know aired, yeah. in, the, aired in the mid-50s mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's like a lot of even with music too like frank sinatra's lyrics you know double entendres you can read more into them when it's for adults and like haha they get it but the kids are like oh what a beautiful voice it's a nice song mm-hmm. um well, it's like clearly reality was divorced from this presentation on TV, and it just becomes more and more absurd as time has gone on. Like that, there was this aesthetic of extreme hiding of things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. It's I like don't it's know not if... like real life was necessarily even close to that. Yeah. Well, by contrast, though, I would say that there's some really brilliant stories. And uh, TV uh, dramas that that come out of this that are, you know, maybe there's some self censorship, but it seems to help some of these shows become very realistic in in other ways. And, yeah. Uh, 
Mm. You know, and you know, again, I'm thinking back to Rod Serling and, and Twilight Zone, and and some of those were very really, realistic. Yeah, very uh, graphic, and um, you know, I I think those are still some of the best uh, TV programs ever produced, and you know, something like the True Detective series, I think, builds a lot on that that aesthetic from the from the black and white days and compressed mm-hmm. compressed uh, stories that you know play out in episodes, but really they're they're uh, getting inside the the mind and hearts of the main characters. Mm-hmm. When did you uh, have the first TV at home? It uh, well, it had to been you know my grandparents' home first and. My mom always told me one of the first things that I watched on television, and I can remember, is the '56 uh, uh, World Series. So I would have been four years old, wow. and that would have, that would have been an afternoon broadcast. And uh, apparently, I got to see uh, the, the famous no hitter by uh, Don Larson. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a memory. Yankees, Dodgers. Okay, okay, um, and then. So, and how big was television a part of life? Was that an everyday thing, or was it kind of a don't watch too much? How did they, you know, sell TV to families back then? Yeah, well, there was always warnings uh, from educators, people that wear bow ties, <laughs> who'd come on and say, "Don't let your children watch more than two hours a week," or you know, something like that. And so, what what that produced was a, a whole bunch of Saturday morning programming. Uh, for children that were unique to to that day, and then eventually programs for teenagers came along, like American Bandstand, that uh, you know came on the air live about three thirty when everybody was coming home from school, hmm. and the segmentation of the of the audience was was ongoing. And there's the famous uh, quote from um, uh, Ed, Edwin New. Um, no, let me get his name right. Uh, I can't think of his last name, but he's famous Edward for Enigma. <laughs> yeah, from Gotham. Um, uh, Minow is his last name, and and he was the president of of the FCC, which regulated TV programs. So anyway, he said TV was a vast wasteland. I think he said that like in '57. So it had a lot of time and room to become even vaster <laughs> and more more of a wasteland. Uh, but yeah, there were always these solemn speeches about how you know, we'll all become illiterate, you know, and that was my generation he was talking about, and I didn't notice the illiteracy, I guess, uh, at least in our household. But uh, but I, I think I was thinking somewhere that really what made me more of a of a reader, analyzer, participant in the wider culture was was reading newspapers. I didn't read a lot of books. I'm not a I wasn't a big fan of novels, but I, I love reading the newspaper. And, uh, you know, of course, especially for, for sports reasons, but uh, eventually I got, I got a sense of how, how does the world talk about itself. And uh, newspapers was one of the ways. And, you know, I, when we go to New York every summer, and they've got like 10 or 15 daily newspapers. I mean, how can they, <laughs> how can they sell that many and, yeah. and what can they cover? But the, the tabloids like Daily News and New York Post and so forth that now uh, you know Rupert Murdoch owns, um, I can I can see where Fox News gets its tabloidy kind of compartmentalization of of the news into these political islands because that's the way New York was covered 
Might yeah. as well up. You know, you talk about reading so many newspapers. This plays into my childhood a lot because I definitely have that image in my head of dad's got newspapers. But also the the other <laughs> image, the other image that comes to mind is printing articles from the internet into a giant stack and then <laughs> reading those, and they'd just be sitting on the table like for you know a day or two, and it's it's all your favorite sports writers, it's all your favorite movie reviews, and it's like the, you wouldn't read them on the oh. screen, which I can understand for some computer screens, but. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd print them yeah. off, and I'd go grab them from the table. So I know Ebert's in there somewhere. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know you were. You noticed that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. I remember thinking how much paper there was. <laughs> like our dad went to campus to print off a hundred pages. <laughs> yeah, there's still so, still something special. I, I, I don't think it, it it's sustained into the 21st century for me. But um, there was something about being able to read them. Um, apart from the machine, and and kind of treasure them and read them slowly, and or read them over again, and and uh, of course that's when we were on a modem that you know had a, like a four, fourteen point four k. Yeah, and you couldn't take up the phone line that long, right? So right. Mm-hmm. get them and print them and then move on. Yeah, it's such a strange like brief window as we were transitioning from, you know. It, hard copies to online for everything now. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's just strange to kind of grow up and do it and see it and not realize that's what's happening while you're doing it. It's just like, oh, cool, the internet. But Do you still print out articles? Yeah, well, I, I do for uh, reference sake so that I don't have to go looking for them if I need them for a bibliography or something like, you know, like on this latest project i've got with the beach boys you don't have like an evernote or one note going or anything like that i haven't i haven't found those very satisfying um <laughs> but i mean i do use notes a lot especially on my laptop but sometimes with my iphone to uh, take notes on the progress you just use the built-in notes app or yeah yeah i i haven't i mean i have evernote on my iphone i've just never used it much mm. and uh i mean i know you can put clips and all sorts of stuff. So but, I, uh, I have an Evernote account, and the only thing in it is when I was working at Road State College in 2008, which is six <laughs> years ago, I took a picture when I sat down and my pants tore. <laughs> and so there's a picture of my torn pants at work and nothing else in Evernote. Because I agree, uh, I never was able to use it for anything useful. Yeah. Well, you know, the original, the original Mac had a couple of programs. I can't remember their names. And they were, they were more or less uh, uh, clip uh, uh, Mac apps. Write. Clip, clip apps. Well, I had MacWrite. That, that was my word processor. But um, I, I used it a lot for teaching composition because uh, we, I, I was the, the pioneer at Bowling Green State University in, in teaching whole composition courses in a lab. And I, I don't think it's necessary anymore to have everybody in a lab you know, <laughs> taking a writing course. I don't think idea. labs should exist anymore. Right. But we had nowhere else to go because, you know, like most universities at that time, the uh, computer science department, if there were any department, sort of had complete control over every conceivable manifestation of, of computing. And so I wrote a grant to get computers to 
you know, I got Macs. I didn't get PCs. Anyway, <laughs> I just remember there were some cheap per disc items like that that you could use to help people revise or, as as we called it, invention. We were using the you know five or six uh, components of the writing process. Everybody talked about the writing process at that time, but mm-hmm. um, anyway. I, I think about these note-taking apps even today that this they don't they aren't quick enough they're not smart enough for me that I can't I, I just use yeah. parsing of of my notes would trigger the, the things I want to remember. So by quick and smart, do you mean like they try to do too much and have too much machinery in the yeah. way? Yeah, there's there's uh, in some ways it's it's aggressively uh, self-indulgent. Uh, for the uh, machine, not for the mm-hmm. user, and uh, I would never use them past a certain point. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, no, I just wanted to take it to uh, to talk about movies a little bit. Um, in remembering, you know, how did those come into your life? You know, growing up, what, what was for your first time at the movie theater and? kind of experiences like seeing the cinema. Yeah, uh, th- this was sort of the, the neat thing about Akron where I grew up is everything was downtown. So the record stores were downtown and the movie theaters were downtown. There was no suburban theater. Uh, the only only suburban theater was really not that suburban. It was you know another 10 miles out of town, but it, 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 was, it was still kind of a, an urban central city uh, experience. And so I can remember the Colonial Theater... And uh, you know, you know, saw some mostly Disney movies, but occasionally we would we would see something a little more uh, elaborate. Like I, I remember for some reason, kind of thinking about this, we saw the black and white Birdman of Alcatraz, uh, Alcatraz with with Burt Lancaster. And I, I don't have any idea why we went to it. Uh, and you know, later, you know, I, I saw it. You know, I was. Maybe twenty years old on on T- TCM or I was had to be much later than that. There probably wasn't. Well, see, see, I I even lose my sense of time because uh, <laughs> TCM probably doesn't come into existence till cable. That's that's you know post nineteen seventy nine. So I couldn't have seen it there. So I must have seen it on the Saturday night at the movies, which was a big NBC Saturday night showcase of the of the greatest films of the you know fifties and sixties mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, Saw the Ten Commandments in the theater, be, although you could see it now every Easter time because everybody who owns the rights to it now plays it at that time. It has nothing to do with Easter, but that's when they choose to play it. <laughs> um, I remember some of the first drive-in movie experiences, um, and uh, one of them I can't tell you. I, I didn't actually watch it; I was too scared because, for again, whatever reason, my mom and dad wanted to see Night of the Hunter which is kind of the all-time scary-for-kids sort of movie. Robert Mitchum plays a, a mean stepdad who's probably going to kill these two kids, and there was just lots huh. of screaming. And so I buried my head in the back seat and tried to go to sleep because um, I never had babysitters. If my parents wanted to see a movie, they just took me. Yeah. And if I could watch, I would <laughs> I would watch, and if, if not, I, I wouldn't watch. But So that's um, why I was able to watch Twin Peaks when I was nine? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think, uh, did, when I was did, nine, you didn't let me watch Army of Darkness, but it was only like a year or two later than yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. But Army of Darkness was so much different than Evil Dead, in, in my view, because it had right. become a yeah, fully... Yeah, it was Three Stooges and not... Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> Not just but, gross. Um, uh, yeah. Just a, a side question, because I always hear about it in film school all the time. Was Wizard of Oz ever a part of that, too? Because that was like a big play it on TV what? all the time. Yeah. Movie. Well, the strange thing about that was I had to pretend to be sick because it was usually played on Sunday nights. Mm. And of course, I grew up. I grew up in a household that went to church twice a day on Sunday, the morning and the night. And my mom uh, was not not much of a big fan of going to church. So, uh, if she could help me pretend to be sick, she would help me so I could stay home and watch Wizard of Oz. I mean, we didn't we didn't do it. We wouldn't have stayed home for everything because you know there, there weren't any baseball games to stay home for because they're all played during the day. So I wouldn't uh-huh. be staying home to watch that. But uh, uh, yeah, that was kind of an event. And um, I remember my wife, Joan, your mom, uh, never got to see Wizard of Oz when she was growing up. Hmm. Uh, and uh, when she finally did get to, she st- she still had to watch it on a black and white TV. So huh. uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it defeats the whole... It, it doesn't have that dramatic <laughs> you know, change in the middle of the movie That's but right. uh, but yeah well, that that was a that was a big a big draw and uh, event uh programming like that was a big thing uh you know the the, the early 60s especially uh, t- TV started to think it could compete with movies in terms of keeping people stay home and so they used to think of Saturday night is a big movie going night so we'll we'll show a big movie on Saturday night and yeah. that'll keep people, you know. Uh, Seems home like from that's the been theaters. a perennial thing: is TV feeling like it has to prove itself to movies, and uh, even into the '80s and '90s. But I, I think some people are arguing now that TV is better than movies, or it gets to tell stories that you can't do in movies nearly as easily. Yeah, or or at least it's created the the cable and, and premium channel class that has some money to spend on that. that yeah. And and you know so network TV has always been a little stale or thing. Although, although what I've been I'm learning by watching almost every day now an episode of of Maverick with James Garner that mm. those scripts were as uh, uh, hilarious as well as action oriented and kind of the you know James Gar- Garner playing that role is uh, the early version of Bruce Campbell. Uh, you know, playing um, the uh, Briscoe Briscoe County, yeah, and uh, and also has lot, lots of innuendo and and clever. You know, there are three or four episodes I'm going to have to write about because uh, they are they are really tremendous in what they were able to do in 50 minutes. You know, counting about 10 minutes of commercials. So, yeah, was um, did you watch The Fugitive originally? I did. Yeah, that was uh, my favorite. Uh, favorite show, and uh, I, I mean, I couldn't believe how good it was compared with other kinds of serials and other, you know. I mean, this actually had a, a timeline, and, and the the episodes connected as opposed to everything being a one off or a, you know a standalone episode. And you knew something he was going to do or meet in an episode might come back in a third season. And and, and by the way, the 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 uh, I, I think one of the uh, producers of that was also a producer of Maverick. Okay. So so there's some connections here as as producers and, and writers and directors coalesce to to make uh, uh, network TV more more watchable and more enduring. As I, I can see them, you know, moving behind the scenes and, and and getting contracts for actors they wanted to work with, 
Because, you know, one of the big things about the introduction of Maverick, I know this is more information than anybody possibly wants to have, is <laughs> it, it always starts off with, this is made by Warner Brothers for TV, you know, out, out there in um, Burbank. Is that like the Hulu, yeah. only on Hulu? Yeah, things <laughs> exactly. like that. And, of course, they still had all these these actors on contract, and they had uh-huh. to make a certain number of episodes. And James Garner was one of the first actors to... Uh, uh, boycott and and not so much for more pay, but sort of combat pay because he was always getting hurt <laughs> in these episodes, falling off horses and you know. And uh, should, there should be a super cut on YouTube of him falling off horses. Yeah. Um, another aspect of this kind of movies and TV watch growing up is um, looking at more like the genre stuff, um, fantasy, sci-fi. You know, things that, you know, we grew up receptive to that already, um, you know, and I'm, you meet people and I meet people who just like can't stand sci-fi or like, oh, Lord of the Rings, like it's to them it's nerdy or it's not like they can't warm up to it and look past it just for the story. Um, but what do you think was kind of some of your early influences that led you to accept fantasy and sci-fi worlds, you know, that inspired you? Well, Certainly, it was the movie uh, "The Day the Earth Stood Still," the original, okay. <clears throat> and um, and I got to see that on um, again network TV. I wouldn't have, I think it was nineteen fifty four, and I would have been two years old, so <laughs> unlikely <laughs> that they would have taken me to see that. But uh, also, uh, you know, late night TV in the fifties was was brilliant for for showing all of these. Um, uh, black and white science fiction movies, some of which were pretty bad, and of course, you know, Mystery Science Theater has parodied <laughs> and, and mocked all that. But there were some really vintage movies, terrifying movies like Invaders from Mars, where you know, without your knowing it, your parents could be whisked away, and they would drill in the back of their heads and turn them into you know alien automatons. Yeah, and so you very know, memorable to me. Though. You know, I, I mean, I, I literally used to think I could come home from school and my parents would have been abducted and replaced by robot parents. And I've joked about that over the years with, with you guys and others, <laughs> but that that didn't seem far-fetched to me. Uh, and of course, you know, Twilight Zone made that even more acceptable. I mean, as far as fantasy, there, there wasn't a whole lot of good fantasy TV or fantasy movies, um, except, you know, there were... There was the Batman series and that kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on these trips to New York, I, I, I didn't really realize this as much as I have recently thinking about the, those trips. And I, I mentioned this in some, some notes I was developing for our, our talk, is that uh, my grandfather, I, I called him Pop, used to take me to these matinees, and I would call them the Hammer films, and so really kind of gruesome the Dracula movies and mm-hmm. uh, uh, some Vincent Price movies, and uh, that's that's one of the um, uh, driving moves I remember seeing. The Tingler, the Tingler by with Vincent Price <laughs> yeah. in it. I don't know if you yeah. ever saw that, but no. And if you saw it in the theater, which I didn't, we we saw it in the in the drive-in. They actually attached things to every seat in the theater that would buzz at a certain point, and, and you mm-hmm. would jump out of your seat because that was part of the... Uh, and they wouldn't tell you in advance? Well, <laughs> you saw the previews, those great oh, so they you would, know, 50s previews. Yeah. They, they would say, you've got to see this in the theater. I don't know where else you would have seen it. You, you couldn't have seen it at home. <laughs> there was no way to you record. Have, have an iPhone? 
didn't have an iPhone, but you 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 think about how um, how impossible it was to imagine a future in which you could see whatever you wanted to see when you wanted to see it, because once it appeared in the in the theaters, you never saw it again. You would never have a chance of seeing it again. There weren't mm-hmm. VCRs and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, That's and why so, ET was in theaters for like sixteen months or something. <laughs> Scarcity. I know. I you know you know I like Spielberg, but I hate that movie, <laughs> and and I would never want to see it again ever. But um, at any rate, is that your least favorite of all his movies? Oh yeah, it have to it has to be. Yeah, yeah. There's something about it. I I don't. I'm not fond of it either. And the Alien to me was always kind of scary a little bit, and that was just my childhood experience. Was I confused him and the Reese's Pieces alien? Yeah. And because <laughs> Reese's, Reese's Pieces just said, oh, the kids eat Reese's Pieces in E.T. The aliens work for marketing our candy. <laughs> um, but I just, I don't know, my early memories of E.T. were just to be afraid of him. So then when I saw it again, maybe like 20 years later, um, then I just see how Spielberg it all is. And, you know, it, it was good i understand why people would like it but i never saw an obsession so i was thinking about all this sci-fi stuff and uh i was wondering like what got us out of the cheesy 50s black and white sci-fi and into like 70s 80s like legit sci-fi i mean i don't mean to assign values to them like this but like was it nasa was it 2001 like how did that shift like it seems like they got a lot more serious. Well, I think when mm-hmm. Kubrick made two thousand one, he brings a different level of uh, attention. There's, cla- and, there's classical and, music in it. It's yeah, like- yeah, and and I actually I didn't see that when it came out, um, and I got I saw it my first year of college, uh, so I didn't see it when it actually came. It was a couple years later, and uh, I didn't realize how good movies could be. Although in some ways I didn't like the ending so much, it was a confusing ending to me. But <laughs> the acid uh, trip. It, yeah, uh, but uh, I remember everybody remembers Hal, the computer who goes bad. Yeah, and, and everyone uh, forgets that there's like 45 minutes of just space station stuff. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I love the beginning of it where you see, oh, there's Coca-Cola in the future. You know, they had the yeah. epi- you know parts of that. So I liked filling in the detail of that, but. Uh, what then? Another uh, four or five years later is *Close Encounters of a Third Kind*. That is a great movie to me, right? And, uh, and because the language of the aliens is not like the alien in the the uh, day the Earth stood still, you know, a giant robot who can destroy all of humankind, <laughs> but it, it communicates through music, and that that to me was a real. And, well, and again, they got so- Truffaut to play in it. I mean, how about yeah. that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Is some of that like I mean you don't want to brush with like overly simplistic brushes, but like post World War Two fears of technology making sci-fi kind of absurd and and like representing our fears, and then it kind of grows up a little bit later and is like no, you can tell other kinds of stories with this. Well, remember uh, Star Trek has happened in between. That's true. So so you've got TV preparing people for a different level of storytelling. And with science fiction and themes. Twilight Zone developed too. I mean, it made right. yeah. it was good as actually good writers getting involved in these genres. Yeah, yeah, all those people. And I, 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 I wouldn't want to not mention here that 
if you read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy at a certain point and it had begun to read, you know, the, the, the uh, heyday of the popularity of yeah, Tolkien. Asimov. You know, yeah, yeah, Asimov and his robotics uh, ethics and that, that sort of stuff. It, it's, it's all right there. But I don't think, you know, what, what, what we call science fiction and fantasy aficionados could never have dreamed that there would be well-made movies taking seriously yeah. mm-hmm. those that- kinds of themes. Those genres don't have to be in the ghetto of literature anymore. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it just took, you know, directors like Kubrick or Spielberg, uh, those who grew up with these, you know, sci-fi. Yeah, sci-fi might have been cheesy as a kid to them, but they they approached it as artists themselves and like, no, we we can explore some really great things using this genre. and I'm sure it was like a new freeing experience too. And I, I'm glad you brought up Close Encounters because that, to me, was also a very you know monumental film growing up, just very memorable in in, in the lights and you know the the tension of the other you know and the mm-hmm. fear that you have. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I just I, I appreciate that I was able to grow up in a house where that was celebrated and not thought of as like strange or like the nerdy kid next door is into sci-fi but I was that kid and I'm, I'm glad <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I was always hoping you wouldn't be those kids in that other house yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah we we grew up knowing about Buckaroo Banzai which is you know says a lot already just with running into people today who ever even has heard of it let alone seen it and then to be to a place where they can appreciate it um and to be in a family where that stuff gets quoted no matter what context i think just i was talking to dad the other day and it just was like that's my hand like just came out because he mentioned his hand and i was like buckaroo lines happening yeah um but no it's it's very fun um I don't know. There was like another slant to influences. I know we can kind of talk about movies forever, but I'm always really, really fascinated that you grew up, you know, in the political climates of the JFK assassination and Nixon and Vietnam and all of that. Um, I think it's that pays into how the world talks about itself, you know, and having to react to these things. Um, yeah. yeah well, I w- I, go ahead. No, I was say yeah. Take it away. I, no, your just your experiences say, with those growing up. See, I would have been considered unusually precocious to be. Uh, say, I would have been eight years old watching the Kennedy Nixon debate and having an opinion about it. I mean, I mean my, you know, my, my, you know, my dad sort of said he's Catholic. We can't vote for him, and uh, you know, just strange things like that. And and I would have. Even at eight years old, had a, a slightly more nuanced <laughs> approach because most of my friends at school in my neighborhood were, were Catholic, you know, and, and uh, they were all ethnic kids, you know, from Hungarian households and and uh, uh, you know Polish and so forth, and so I you know, I I felt a little awkward about that, but um, <laughs> th- th- I mean there was something fascinating to me, and I I liked watching the. The uh, not only the debates but the uh, uh, conventions that led up to them, mm-hmm. and I even I wrote a, a letter that got published in the Akron Beacon Journal once uh, in in favor of Barry Goldwater, who was the extreme 
candidate, uh, you know, uh, extreme right candidate for the Republicans. Of course, today he would be considered middle of the road, very libertarian, you know, very open to <laughs> anything. But but he was pinned by uh, by Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, post Kennedy assassination, running for the first time on his own as the uh, the person who will lead us into nuclear war. And of course, you know, like most people of that time in the schools and on TV, we would have these public service announcements and you know, the the uh, infamous duck and cover yeah. kind of approach was was literally what what we heard as well. You know, if you see, if you see a blast, of course, if you see a blast, it's too late. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> but but you know, you can get under your. I kept thinking, wow, these deaths must be really special to protect us from. But um, I, I mentioned uh, Johnson because I was um, fanatically interested in the the Warren Commission report on the assassination of of uh, JFK, and uh, you know w- would read about it in the library. It was in the newspapers all the time, and and uh, so uh, all all that was fascinating to me. Again, my my entry point through that was you know uh, the newspapers. Kevin Costner. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Kevin using his own nor nor or New Orleans accent, right? Just like to be his, Robin Hood. Yeah, to be Robin. Hood. <laughs> but um, no. and of course, you know, v- Vietnam uh, wasn't even a, a blip on the radar for most Americans until that particular uh, presidential campaign, because. LBJ and uh, and uh, Goldwater talked about it incessantly, and people were, you know, uh, the, the draft had been reinstituted, and you know, people were, you know, flying out every day uh, on these, uh, you know, uh, big. Uh, uh, what, <laughs> I can't think of what they're called. These, uh, you know, ships you see, you see, you know, newspaper accounts. That, you know, another, you know, thousand boys were shipped off to. Uh, Laos and in Vietnam and then the all Southeast Asia, and uh, I, I always you know you know wondered you know why all these military shows were on too. And in the mid mid sixties, there was combat. There was a, a, a series of uh, of shows that were meant to popularize and and make more um, palatable the fact that people were. We're going off to fight in a war that you know they didn't understand. That was the the big big uh, phrase because like sitcoms. Uh, well, Hogan's Heroes yeah. was about World War Two, but it had kind of had that that forward push to it. Like you know, even if our boys get captured, you know they'll have a, a pleasant commandant <laughs> to joke with. And, you know, I mean it's not it's not not logical, of course, but but there was hardly. Uh, any network executive of that time who would have been anything but pro-war and and uh, you know trying trying to make Vietnam make sense, and then Nixon comes along in '68 and says, "I have a secret plan to end the war," and uh, you know you know he kept it pretty secret for, for five years, <laughs> and then uh, you know, but I, I I mentioned my notes that you know I. I I don't know if I was a coward or not, but I certainly w- was more thoughtful about it. So I actually filed my paperwork to be a conscious objector and, uh, you know, use Christian uh, reasoning and, you know, biblical things about that. You know, I remember one of my, my uh, lines, and it must have made whoever read this laugh. I said, what if I met on the battlefield 
a Christian brother. You know, I couldn't shoot him. You know, in, in my naive mind, 15 years old, 16 years old, whatever I was, I was thinking, oh, of course, they'll self-announce on the battlefield. It's like, hey, I see, Bruce, you're, you, you're a Christian, right? So we won't shoot at each other, but you can shoot this other guy. This other guy can be killed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, um, I, I just recently, finally, officially watched Apocalypse Now Redux uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's just very much on my mind, too, growing up as, you know, we're, we're in the aftermath of, of Vietnam, you know, in all the, of the movies. Yeah. Um, so many movies in the 80s of people dealing with it. and But also just weird muscle-bound American superpower movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Arnold and, you know, big muscle guys doing crazy things. Yeah. Um, Chuck Norris doing Rambo. Missing in Action. Yeah, Rambo. Yeah. Um, but then I also remember just a series of these, this very serious Vietnam movies, um, Hamburger Hill, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, you know, that's Kubrick's take on it. Right. Um, and there was a TV show even they made of, um, what was the name of it? Some mission... Um, but just, you know, growing up, so I, I knew nothing about Vietnam other than that was the worst thing ever and I can't believe it happened. And then I saw Jacob's Ladder and I decided that, you know, let's stop making Vietnam movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, one of the series was called Tour of Duty, I remember. That's it, yeah. And uh, they probably got called called to duty or called. <laughs> like it's already from- like a TV series about the Vietnam War. Like every week people want to tune in and watch that, like. I don't know what they were thinking. Well, it's but. like if, if World War II taught us how we can destroy ourselves physically, Vietnam was like the psychological messed upness of war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then um, there was uh, Mash, which was not about the Vietnam War, but it really was. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, it was about Korea, and you know, completely anti-war, and, and you had Catch Twenty Two, which was a great book, oh, a yeah. terrible, terrible yeah. movie. Yeah. But. Uh, did yeah. you see the? Did you see Mash in theaters? No, Robert Altman. No, I didn't. Uh, I, I just you know saw the the later TV show based upon it. I, I remember thinking, not having seen the original Mash, how can you make a movie? Uh, uh, how can you make a TV show out of a movie? Of course, now it's done all the time, but it didn't make sense to me that those genres would allow for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I can't remember when Mash came out. Sixty-eight, maybe. And uh, I, of course, couldn't get into a theater because it was R-rated. Seventy so, for that, yeah. Yeah. So I had a dream with Alan Alda in it the other week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't tell you the dream, but it it was strange. Um, to our, he's the one. No, he's not from Toledo, right? Who's the Toledo guy who's always? He was in MASH, not Alan Alda. He was the other guy who was yeah, Wayne Rogers yeah. or McLean Stevenson. Or no, he's, he's the... Uh, I'm just reading cast members. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, I, I can't think of his name either. I can't even think of Jamie his... Jamie uh, Farr. Jamie Farr, yep, yeah. exactly. Okay. Hey, <laughs> the Jamie Farr golf classic. Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> he's, he's still alive. He's 80. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wonder if he still does the Clinger, golf that's his name. I just thought of his name. Clinger. Yeah, Corporal Cleaner. Um... <laughs> He always wore a dress and stuff. Uh, anyway, but the mash was all, seems like it was always on TV. It seems like that was on right before cartoons would start, and so it was always annoying. Like, yeah, the, mash. I do have that psychological, like, <laughs> ah, come on, what's this weird people show? Get to the cartoon. 
Yeah. Yeah. And after MASH came on to preserve or extend the, the life of the show, and that's always used in the TV critical writing these days for an idea that won't work. And so, you know, don't bring us another friends. Don't give Joey his own, you know. Yeah, don't yeah. try to spin it off. Yeah. There have yeah. to be successful spin-offs. I mean, it's probably the reason is the spin-off becomes more important than the original show, and people just forget yeah. the other way. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Fargo is the exception, right, for for a TV series, but it's a short series with a very connected um, aesthetic to the original that yeah. makes it work, and uh, but it doesn't usually work. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you just your you know, for the record here, your experience with Star Wars and coming out in theaters and when you first saw it. Yeah. Episode four. <clears throat> Episode four is always the one I cite as the, the one that's brilliant. And um, uh, saw it in uh, Manhattan, Kansas in 77 and uh, got interviewed by the uh, uh, Manhattan Mercury, the local newspaper, coming out of the theater. And I got quoted, and I gave him a, a real academic sort of phraseology. Oh, it's a space opera. You know, it's cowboys in space, you know, something like that. But I, I was wowed by it. I'd never, you know, it took the genre seriously. It took the kind of the old serials, which I'd seen a lot of, Flash Gordon and so forth growing up. Um, but uh, it, it was just really terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know how soon after opening weekend you saw it, or was that opening weekend? I saw it opening night. Yeah, because <laughs> right. that's what because that's why the newspaper was covering it. Yeah, so there and, was plenty of hype, and you were excited to go see it. Yeah, and uh, I think I think there was you know it's Manhattan, Kansas, so it's in the, literally in the middle of Kansas, so it's not like there's a lot of hype that can get to you. <laughs> Um, and uh, no, like big lines around the corner there. No, I was surprised. I mean, it was filled eventually by the time the movie started, but you know there weren't no there weren't lines. Uh, and okay. let's see, I'm trying to think of the theater where we saw it. It was a there's not a mall. There wasn't a mall in Manhattan at the time, so uh, it must have been a standalone theater, like a stadium cinema. Although there weren't wasn't stadium uh, seating, so you know you had to look over the top of the person that was in front of you. But um, yeah, it, it had tremendous effect on uh, you know. It, of course, it generated uh, some TV shows then, and you know some other really bad uh, kinds of uh, parodies of it. I mean, <laughs> unintended parodies. But you know, like the last Starfighter and some of those movies, they, I mean, they all got pushed through the Hollywood machine, just like yeah. all the the school magical teenager movies. Yeah, now. yeah, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So that but, would but, have been Matt would have been two years old, um, and Mary wasn't born just yet. This is May twenty fifth. So mom was pregnant, right? Right, and that she would have been born two months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, our, our friend in Manhattan... Uh, uh, I just wanted to say pregnant because we're allowed to on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say, though, um, that I knew who George Lucas was because I had seen American Graffiti in the theater in New York when it opened, and I had seen THX 1138, his science fiction movie, which mm. he did. And so... I what you know? I don't know what the rest of the moviegoers in Manhattan, Kansas, were thinking, but I was thinking this is George Lucas. It's got to be good, uh, 
Yeah. Was, but I did see Howard the Duck, and that disproved <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, so. Take a chance. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, to know, to think of those, you know, experiences for me, you know, like I, I can't imagine being the first person to see Raiders of the Lost Ark also, like how it could have blown me away um, as a filmmaker today. It's so hard to think of a movie that I was so excited about to go see and that delivered on it. Um, as a kid, I think Jurassic Park was a really big deal. Yeah, that was a big um, deal. I don't know if it still feels that way now. But no, <laughs> it's it's really well done. I saw it again. They had like the re-release in 3D, and I wanted just to see it just because. Um, but it's yeah, it's really well done. But to me, like it's still it's like yeah, but it's Jurassic Park. Like you didn't get to launch, you know, a game-changing experience like. To me, always Star Wars and Indiana Jones from from a kid. Well, and what would those be for our generation? Like the Matrix, or <laughs> sadly, yeah. I mean, if you Terminator ask the, Two, ask the kids. Terminator Two was also another huge one for me. I know I just floored by it. I couldn't believe what I was and seeing. It's still so good. Yeah, and it's perfect. And I reading about it today. I know this has got passed around a bit lately, but. Um, that it's written, if you watch it and you didn't know anything about it, you just watched Terminator 1 and then Terminator 2, it, you wouldn't know that Arnold Schwarzenegger is the good guy until this very precise yeah. moment he turns and covers John Cotter to block the bullets. So it's like, oh, I, like what a big reveal that would have been. Yeah. Ex- except that Hollywood didn't allow it and James Cameron fought with them and were like, no, we need to tell people they that Arnold's a good guy. It, that he's the good they guy. advertise that he's a good guy now. And like, Man, like oh, that's horrible. To, maybe someone in a bubble will experience that still if they just <laughs> don't know anything. It, literally yeah. in a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to comment on Star Wars real quick that as, <clears throat> as much as George Lucas wanted to improve the special effects... You know, and you know, in later versions of it and editions of it, he he's tried to do that and change the stories some. Um, it still was spectacular. I mean, I, I don't think anybody in that theater had ever seen even close to the kind of uh, yeah. of uh, explosions and and uh, you know starship detail and uh, you know. So so contrast all of that hard work and and. You know the invention of all those uh, units of of, uh, uh, of people that he employed to do all that. Uh, that's now commonplace. Know. You know, Peter Peter Jackson does it, and so on and so forth. But but that that was the incredible experience of it. Here's somebody who really loved what he was doing and knew that somebody like me would be in the audience. They wouldn't just see, oh, you know, Luke rescues the princess or something, but all of what went into that. In the holograms and so forth, um, uh, you know, what I found myself thinking is, I wish Rod Serling were here to have these tools available to tell his stories. Yeah, and of course, you know, people take up his his mantle and, outer and, limits. and, and, and do it. Yeah, outer limits was terrific, and mm. um, but uh, and and so it gives you some kind of generational sense of. Who do you think is carrying that torch the best now of Twilight Zone? Is it that what was that Black Mirror show or Yeah, yeah, but but that was still more on shock. You know, I mean, the one episode was kind of science fictiony uh about, you know, kind of uh, you know, uh reassembling a a life That's the and, Charlie and, Brooker's doing that. Yeah. 
but it's still you know the wide variety of, of you know space uh, fantasy. Uh, you know Rod Serling's old old trick was to uh, take the the arrogant fool who knows everything and bring him low. You know, reduce him to let let him see what he's really like. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, who's doing that now? You know. It's hard to think of a filmmaker who's doing it. I mean, there are episodes of different TV shows, particularly you know, HBO type shows, Showtime type shows. But um, yeah, I mean, Coen Brothers like to I mean, torture Ryan, their Ryan characters. Jo- Ryan Johnson, I assume, is going to do that or can do that. Yeah, we'll see yeah, what he does with Star he's Wars. He's very promising, absolutely. Um, and I'm curious to see the. Guy, I mean, he just did one movie, The Safety Not Guaranteed, and he's doing the oh, yeah. Jurassic Park reboot. So I'm like, that's kind of a curious jump to me as well. It's like, what could he bring to Jurassic Park from this indie sci-fi comedy world that he came from? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a few filmmakers. I'm excited. Anything, um, did they Dunk- do Baghead, too, or is that someone else? Uh, that's Duplass Brothers. Yeah. Mm, no, I don't think they're going to push any envelopes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Duncan Jones is another one. Like he he did Warcraft, right. so I guess I'll see Warcraft. I never would have. Oh, but, um, yeah. That'll be next year. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I was just the other day mourning the loss of James Cameron for another ten years as he does more avatars. You know, I would love to see him get to something special again, but. <laughs> Um, I guess Avatar would be a, a generation's, you know, supposed experience, you know, going to the 3D immersion and epic story again. But it's just, you know, for me, I, w- I didn't really enjoy Avatar that much. But um, hmm, yeah, I don't yeah. know who, who can do it today. Yeah, well, you know, uh, not JJ. Uh, Danny Boyle. When he takes up a science fiction theme, he does a good job with it. I just watched uh-huh. Sunshine the other day again. Yeah, I'd, for, yeah. I'd forgotten it, but again, the, the attention to detail, the the dramatic action that's that's conveyed through looks and just uh, yeah. not, not not so much plot driven, although that's there. You don't watch it for the plot, uh, or I don't watch it for the plot exclusively. So, or Christopher yeah. Nolan, we'll see with Interstellar. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, guarded. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, and then Ridley Scott with Blade Runner, which was an amazing movie to see for the first time. Of course, that's another epic. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I've heard he's he's at work on Prometheus Two or whatever they'll call it. And if they really do the space adventures of David and what's her name, that I'm into it. It's definitely he's yeah. He just said today the aliens won't be a part of that sequel. And I'm I'm okay um, with. That. I'm not even mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'm interested. I mean, I would always love to see Spielberg get back and do a great big sci-fi because he was actually on Interstellar for a couple of years um, himself, and then you know got busy with all of his historical epics and yeah, the movies. Uh, r- robot apocalypse movie. But yeah, not like War of the Worlds. What's his most recent sci-fi? I th- yeah, War of the Worlds, right? Um, the two thousand three Minority Report. Um, oh yeah, true. AI. I mean, he's done these movies. He's gone back to the genre, but um, never with like some new fervor of like, oh look what he did with it. That's great. Yeah. Um, Tintin, Warhorse. 
Lincoln, St. James Place, the BFG. That's right. That's next. Um, yeah, and then this guy who did uh, uh, District 9 was great. Elysium was not. Um, <laughs> but I think that he has something that he could, he could do. Yeah, I don't him. know what happened with District 9 because it was, it was visually there. Mm. But the, the story just kind of petered out. I don't know. Um, District 9 or Elysium? Oh, Elysium. Elysium, yeah. That's what I meant. Um, it was yeah. uh, uh, Julie Fo- Jodie Foster's accent. <laughs> or lack thereof or, not, or something. She Kevin Costnered it. Yeah. yeah. But well, without his, his savoir-faire. Um, well, we did just come up um, past an hour a little bit ago. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to cover specifically dad now that you have the the mic but um you had some other things here you kind of listed a lot of great movie experiences um in baseball we didn't really go into baseball at all but this is why we're launching a new podcast for <laughs> edward's yeah. culture discussions you didn't realize but this was kind of the uh episode zero zero for uh <laughs> bruce's podcast to talk about his own take on things um yeah yeah it kind of came up because even just the last um few days ago i had just rediscovered this sci-fi um fantasy book series that was kind of like choose your own adventure but it has a little more like games and puzzles to it called in be an interplanetary spy Mm -hmm. and we had a few of these books growing up and i would love to hear the story like who got these i'm assuming like it was matt in some way got interplanetary spy books and that's talking about our older brother matt who we call the tastemaker <laughs> sounds like a starflyer song um but um there's just these books and i i devour them many 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 times over the years um and i guess michael has one in his office he still has a copy yeah we had this, I just remember this little bookshelf upstairs at the village house that, you know, had the books, the kids' books, and it was, that we had like two or three of these, and um, yeah, it was just read them over and over and over again, and, um, but also just part of, again, my education in, in story experience and, you know, the fantastic and, and kind of the wild fun you can have. And these it. books were just spilling with enthusiasm. Like, <laughs> it was just like more than a video game. You track down the, the criminal. And, like, they had all these, like, so much of what Pseudobook is is maybe we'll have to tackle this in another episode. But yeah, some of the, the humorous side of Pseudobook is, I think, this is part of it. I can draw a direct line <laughs> from... Um, I don't even remember the leader of the elite aliens. Zamax or whatever. Zamax. <laughs> He's an exact line to this <laughs> interplanetary criminal that I had to track down once. Um, but I, I just recently found a archive.org has every single one of the books on there as a PDF that you can go get. Um, and someone even very nicely had adapted the PDF and made each go to page X, you know, it's cause you jump around the book and you know, you pick an option and you go to page 22 or page 70. Um, they actually made links out of that. So you can just still read the book and <laughs> so click. there's definitely there's followers that love these books that someone would lovingly <laughs> put this together. Yeah. But, um, 
I don't know. It's just to think of it now, too, in, in light of just this year, they announced they're making a choose your own adventure movie. I don't even know what that means, yeah. but um, yeah, farming our, our nostalgia for those 80s experiences. Yeah. Well, I, I would I would say <clears throat> most of my imaginative life <clears throat> comes from reading comic books growing up and, you know, Whenever you ask somebody who their favorite hero is, hardly anybody ever says Green Lantern, but he he was mine. He was unique, you know. And and so, of course, I'm I'm sorry that they'd ever made a live action <laughs> Green Lantern movie if it can be <laughs> redeemed. But now that it's sort of under the control of people who would put, you know, uh, a certain person in Batman's role, clearly they don't really have any intention of. Worried about the story and so forth. honoring the the spirit of it, yeah. yeah. But uh, <clears throat> and I don't I didn't know anybody uh, who loved comics as much as I did growing up. So it wasn't like I had a peer group. Or, you didn't have Comic Con. <laughs> I, I didn't have that. And um, you know uh, the the one story I'll 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 finish talking about. We can come back to this someday. Is I remember um, uh, going into a big used bookstore in New York City, just a couple of blocks down from where we, we stayed every summer on 23rd Street. And here were you know, all these books, but they had this treasure trove of, uh, of 50s DC comics. And, uh, you know, I love the art from that era in particular and, and uh, so forth. And here were all these origin tales that were, were being published. And uh, I would never have seen them in Akron, but the, you know they were sort of bought, then you know, remaindered, and here they were, and, and I bought you know maybe ten or fifteen of them, were my prized possessions, <clears throat> and of course I achingly uh, uh, sold them when we were about ready to try to make a down payment on our house uh, for Village Drive, and so <laughs> we needed all the help we can get, and I think I got three thousand dollars for those uh, wow. first editions. And uh, we, I, if I'd kept better care of them, and if I had you know shopped around, I probably could have got ten thousand for them. And now today, probably a hundred thousand for them. But um, it, it was uh, it was it was a great being a child. I you know I, I didn't like Marvel very much, although I came to enjoy you know some of the characters and Iron Man and that sort of stuff. But I didn't want my superheroes to have to worry about pimples. Because that's what I had to worry with, and so I didn't want to identify with that. You wanted Although, the escape or the yeah, just something the, other. Yeah, just a, a. I mean, Clark Kent had his problems, but they were they were intentional, right? And uh, but they weren't weren't part of who he was, and so you know, I that had to grow on me, and and uh, uh, I, I liked the heroic nature, and uh, the, the one character who got to me was Reed Richards, Mister Fantastic from from uh, uh, Fantastic Four because there was a certain scene which uh, Dr. Doom had switched bodies with him and he was Reed Richards and for all the, 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 the sake of everybody who was looking in he uh, Reed Richards uh, was Dr. Doom and they were about ready to kill him and, and he, he makes this great speech kind of like uh, Puddle Glum in, uh, in uh, the uh, uh, the silver Story, chair, or? silver chair. Who who basically says, "I don't look like Reed Richards, but you, you know me. You know my character, and I'm willing to lay down my life for you." Blah blah blah. And so that's what 
turn the, the story around. And I always thought that that is a great, you know, that sac- self-sacrificial theme, nobility, that, that always uh, captured, <clears throat> you know, my... Uh, my heart and and the kinds of things that you kind of live for in movies and TV shows and songs is that that sense of uh, nobility and purpose and it's not just a uh, you know a, a happy-go-lucky thing uh, although that's not easy to do either I think uh, present uh, uh, kinds of movies uh, when you you think about them they're, they're always something. Uh, that's going to spoil the the show, but uh, that always gets me. So I, I look for it, I like it, you know. And so in um, you know whether whether it's a Ryan Johnson movie or uh, you know I'm I'm hoping that uh, you know the next uh, Ridley Scott movie, whatever. I'm, I'm looking for mm-hmm. that sort of character, you know, male or female, old or young, uh, you know, an animal. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Well, I even was just thinking of like in Terminator Two when he goes into the the molten metal at the end, like that moment of like even I have to die for your future. Like yeah. somehow James Cameron did it with a robot that is only sort of sentient. But yeah, well, we could do a whole program about robots. I think. <laughs> well, what you're saying reminds me of you know Ebert says this too here. He, you know, he can cry at the movies, but not so much at you know stuff that's sad or you know people going through the hard time. But he cries when people choose to do good, and that right. moves him to tears um, in his his kind of enjoyment of the movies. And um, and I'm very much the same way. I mean, I I can admit I cry at the movies pretty often. It's apparently, but um, <laughs> it's usually now it's because characters are being good and choosing goodness and wanting to do the right thing. And um, that to me is when, when I'm fully empathetic and I'm, I'm in the movie. So um, yeah. That's, I agree. <laughs> sounds like as great a place as any to, to wrap up. So um, Justin cries at the movies. Justin cries at the movies. Dad, Bruce, where do people find you on the internet if they want to talk to you or see what you're up to? Well, let's let's use uh, the email that I derived from uh, where I used to teach. So Bruce BGSU at gmail dot com. And uh, any of the the web presences you'd want to? Uh, there's the which Twitter. <laughs> uh, well, you know. There's so many there's a personalities <laughs> I have. Uh, there's there's one uh, like that too. So you can use Bruce BGSU, you know, at Bruce BGSU as as one of them. So why not use that? Um, you know, the the one um, uh, useful place to contact me, no matter whether you're interested in C.S. Lewis or not, is is um, uh, C.S. Lewis Review, one word, dot org. Cool. And uh, you can find the show notes to this episode at pseudobookpodcast.com slash 011. Yee, all right. Yeah, and I'm Mike Edwards. M. Edwards Music on Twitter or pseudomichael.com. Yes, and this is Pseudo Justin at Pseudo Justin on Twitter. That'll be great. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>